Love you guys. I have a, uh, I got a word. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103, one of my favorite psalms. And would you stand with me as we prepare to read the word of God, acknowledging its authority over our lives. We're going to be in the first five verses of Psalm chapter 103. It's a psalm of David, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and let all that's within me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I want to title this message, Bless the Lord. And I just want to talk about two things. One, the blesser, and two, the blessing. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, we love you. Fill this place with your presence. God, because we welcome you here. Your people and your bride, God, are saying, come, minister to us. God, as we gather for you. Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, would you be glorified in this place? And if you're not glorified in any other heart, would you be glorified in this heart? Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Bless the Lord. This is a message that I believe no matter where you are at in your life, this message is for you. Whether you are at the top of your game and you can't imagine that anything could go wrong and you're on the mountaintop, this message is for you. Whether you are in the worst season of your life and you don't know what could go right, dare I say, this message is for you. That if you're on the mountaintop, you ought to bless the Lord. And if you're in the valley, you ought to bless the Lord. It's a message that I would call a life-proof message. No matter where you're at in life, you ought to bless the Lord. Bless, um, in Hebrew, that we find in Psalms chapter 103, is this word that just means to kneel. Kneel down. It infers this idea of worship and coming to God humbly to worship him, to bless him. And when you think about blessing in the scriptures, you can see it a few different ways. You can see it as man blessing God, God blessing man, man blessing man. Sometimes you have fathers who bless sons. You have kings who bless people. You have God who blesses man. And in the Psalms, oftentimes what we see is multiple times the psalmist will say, bless the Lord. We have man blessing God. 
And when we look at what it looks like for man to bless God, one thing we need to understand first and foremost is that it's completely separate and different from God blessing us. Because when God blesses us, we never deserve it. But when we bless him, he always does. We need to understand the right order of blessing before we get into what it means to actually bless the Lord. And I believe that when we bless God, it speaks far more about God than it ever does about us. Because it gives us a glimpse into who this God actually is. A God that would actually condescend and receive the blessing from humanity. Typically, when you think about a blessing, you think of the person in authority blessing somebody lower, the person of higher blessing somebody lower. But in this instance, we are in the place where the psalmist is teaching us to bless God. It's always the person of higher blessing lower because what is a blessing if not to give somebody something that they don't have? Encouragement, resources, power. In the scriptures, you can find God blessing people with children, with strength strengthening them. And when you think about God blessing us, that makes sense. God gives us something that we don't have. But what does it mean for us to bless God who already has everything? See, God is holy, which means that he is incorruptible. He doesn't need anything else. He is sufficient in and of himself, and he doesn't need anybody else to influence him, and nobody can influence him. That he is unchangeable. So if God doesn't need anything that we have and our blessing can't change him, then why does the scripture teach us to? If I went to go and bless Messi before he played a soccer game for Inter-Miami, it wouldn't make a lot of sense and it would almost be a bit patronizing to an extent, right? To presume that Messi actually needs something from me because I kick a soccer ball and stub my toe and he is the best soccer player to ever live. And you almost consider, would you do amen that? <laughs> you don't know how athletic I am. <laughs> but to consider that somebody of lower will bless somebody higher is almost, if you think about it, a bit patronizing. Unless you consider, Messi wouldn't probably not care if I blessed him in his soccer match, but he would care if his kids did. His kids came up to him and said, Dad, you can do it. I bless you. I got, you got this. I'm sure that he would receive it differently. Why? Not because their blessing is different than mine, but because he loves them. There's kids. Did you know that God wants you to bless him? Not because you have something to give to him, but because he actually loves you. And if blessing is not intended to give God something that he doesn't have, and if blessing is not intended to change God, might I submit to you that blessing God is actually intended to change you? Bless the Lord, is what David says. He's a God who draws near to us when we have no business being close to him. 
and gives us a glimpse into his character. This psalm, Psalm 103, is what theologians call an inclusio, which simply just means that it starts and ends with the same phrase. Bless the Lord is how David starts the psalm, and bless the Lord is how David ends the psalm, as if to say a microcosm of what our lives should be, that we should be born blessing God, we should die blessing God, and every space in between we ought to bless God. You see, we were intended and created created to bless God. God was not intended and created to bless you. And if we get those things backwards, we will live a Christian life with Christian motivations that are not consistent with scripture. And you will always have God auditioning for your lordship because you will consider my life and God is only as good as my life is. God is not intended and designed to bless you. You are designed to bless him. But the good thing about God is that when you bless him, you get blessed. That he is so good that you actually get something from blessing him. I believe that if we don't have a right revelation that God desires for you to bless him, then you will miss out on the blessing of God. He says, bless the Lord, David says. Bless the Lord. And some of us, I fear, might be missing out on everything that God has for us in the Christian life because we are still looking for God to bless me. We're sitting in this church thinking, I come to church so God can bless me. I give to God so God can bless me. I sing worship songs and I serve in grace loves so God can bless me. But in reality, no, no, no. We are not here to be blessed by him. We're here to bless him. To minister to the heart of God. Say, God, I was created for you and only you. You're the satisfier of my soul. And so for me to give you a blessing is the only right and proper thing for me to do. He says, bless the Lord. You see, when we bless God, it doesn't change him, but it does please him. One of my favorite people in the scriptures is Mary. Uh, Mary, the, there are a lot of Marys, and Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Um, there's this one instance in Mark chapter 14 where Mary is actually uh, washing the feet of Jesus with this expensive ointment. And it's a different story, actually, than what Pastor AJ was exhorting to us earlier in the service. There's a sinful woman who comes in and anoints Jesus' feet. And then there's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, who comes in to anoint Jesus' feet. It's this circumstance where they're at Bethany before Jesus is about to be crucified, but after he has raised Lazarus from the dead. She is sitting at his feet, and all of a sudden she breaks over open this jar and anoints Jesus's feet with this ointment that costs almost a year's wage. All of a sudden, Jesus's best friends, his disciples, look and say, man, that's such a waste. Why did she do that? They, we could have sold that and given this to the poor, but now it's just wasted and it's all over his feet. And it's an interesting thing that Mary does because in this moment, she in a way is actually anointing Jesus. And it's strange because in Jewish culture, what you would typically do is somebody would come into your home and you would wash their feet with water and you would anoint their head with oil. But what Mary does here is that she washes his feet with oil and dries them with her hair as if to say, God, my most expensive thing 
is not good enough for your head, but maybe it's good enough for your feet. See, Mary teaches us something about worship. And one thing I've noticed about Mary, as you see her all throughout the scriptures, is that you can find Mary always in one consistent place, at the feet of Jesus. See, when Lazarus died, Jesus came to where they had laid him, and Mary comes out, and as Mary comes out, it says in the scriptures in John she comes to Jesus and she says, if you had been here, my brother would have died as she falls at Jesus' feet. And then Mary, in a different circumstance, as she is waiting, at, waiting with Jesus, Martha is busy in the kitchen preparing food and hosting like a good host should, and Mary isn't helping at all, but she's busy sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. And in this portion in Mark chapter 14, another time, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, washing or anointing his feet with oil and drying them with her hair. You see, if you want to find Mary, look at Jesus' feet. And there's something that I realized in Mark chapter 14 that I hadn't seen before, that I believe in this moment, out of all of the places in the New Testament, this is one of the most explicit moments where somebody blesses God. Because you find in Mark chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus, after they're criticizing her, he says to this, why are you criticizing her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Did you know that you are able and capable of doing a beautiful thing to Jesus? And remember, what does bless mean? To kneel. I believe that Mary knew something about blessing God that we could learn, which is this. If you want to bless God, find his feet and love him there. Mary knew how to bless God. And would God say that of us, that they've done a beautiful thing to me? If you don't have a mission in your life specifically to minister to God, I would suggest adopting this one. Would God say of me that I have done a beautiful thing to him with my life? As he said of Mary. And would God say that to us as a church, that when he looks at Grace Covenant Church, he would have a testimony that says, they have done a beautiful thing to me. Bless the Lord. David blesses the Lord. And we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm in his life, but Charles Spurgeon, a great theologian, suggests that it was in the later part of his life because he says, David had had a higher sense of the preciousness of pardon because a keener sense of sin than in, his old, than in his younger days. You see, a tip for studying the scriptures is to ask yourself this one question. What does this person's life have to do with what they just said or did? If you want to get deeper revelation out of the scriptures, just ask yourself that question as you read any story. What does this person's life have to do with what they just said or did? You take a look at Joseph, and you remember that he was, uh, uh, he was essentially called and had this dream that he was going to rule over his brothers, and then his brothers sold him into slavery, and then he was in a pit, and then he was in Potiphar's house, but then he was persecuting, he was under pressure, and then he went to a prison, and all of a sudden, he's in this palace, and it's this amazing story 
But what does Joseph's life have to do with what he said when he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good? You ask yourself, what does Paul's life have to do with when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain? What does Solomon's life have to do with when he said, man, everything is vanity under the sun. It's all striving after the wind. What does it mean when it was said of Esther, maybe you were born for such a time as this? What does it mean of Jesus when he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve? If you want to get a deeper revelation of scripture, just ask yourself that question. What does this person's life have to do with what they just said or what they just did? Now let's go to David, Psalm chapter 103. Bless the Lord. You consider David's life and David was anointed to be king before the king who was currently there had passed away, Saul. And Saul was a fine king in the beginning and a bad king at the end. So bad to the extent that David was serving under him as David was anointed king, but not king yet. And Saul was trying to kill him by any means necessary because he was so insecure about the, the reality of his anointing. And he was so intimidated by David's anointing that he tried to get rid of the anointing, which you can't do. David, all of a sudden, is running from Saul at portions of his life. Saul's throwing spears at David as David is playing the harp, trying to soothe him. David would dodge the spear, play again. Dodge the spear, play again. He'd go hide in caves. All of a sudden, he would have an opportunity to kill Saul. He didn't kill Saul. Told Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why? Because you're the Lord's anointed, and I wouldn't dare touch the Lord's anointed. So let's ask ourselves the question, what does David's life have? Have to do with him saying, bless the Lord. Might I submit to you this reality, that David was so used to blessing inferior lords that he had no issue blessing a greater one. David had been blessing Saul, honoring Saul, giving Saul what was due to him his entire life without any insecurity of what it meant towards him. And so he was able to freely say, if I could bless Saul, who was a wicked king, I am more than willing and able, and it is right for me to bless the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, David says. <laughs> he says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. You see, your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions as we understand it. It's different than your spirit as we understand it. Your spirit is the part of you that is regenerated by God. It's the part of you that is saved. It is the essence. It's actually the part of you that's communicating with God. We find in Romans that his spirit actually testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's this part of you that actually wants to please God. That's why in Romans chapter 7, Paul kind of sounds a bit almost like, double-minded. If you remember, Paul, Romans chapter 7, he's saying, man, I, I don't do what I want to do, but I don't want to do it, but I do what I don't want to do. It's because Paul is describing the tension and the wrestle between his spirit that wants to please God and his flesh that doesn't. And David is not saying, bless the Lord, oh my spirit, because your spirit wants to bless God. He's talking to the part of him that doesn't want to bless God. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. You know why he's telling his soul to bless the Lord? I believe it's because sometimes we let our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions lead our worship. 
And I believe we don't do this intentionally or out of a malicious intent. This is just a human nature response. We, in an effort, I believe, to be authentic, we try and worship God from our soul. That if I feel like raising my hands, I will. But if I don't, then I won't. If I like the song, then I'll sing. But if I don't, then I won't. If I, if I want to kneel, then I will. But if I don't, then I won't. And we believe that we're being authentic. It isn't, it isn't truly me if I give God, because that's fake. I was at a church a couple years ago, and um, he was talk- we were talking about our congregations. I was about to speak there, and he was like, hey, just FYI, as we get into worship, um, <laughs> he said, our church is really good at half of the great commandment. And I was like, what does that mean? Great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? He says, our church is really good at half. He said, we're really good at loving the Lord our God with our mind, but not really with our heart. I said, what do you mean? He was like, so when you're in worship, they're going to be like this. He's like, they're not going to sing. They're not going to raise their hands. He's like, but don't be discouraged. He's like, it's just, it's just what it is. Like, my church is fine. Our church is saved. But, like, they just aren't going to, like, worship vocally and they're not going to do that. He's like, but with the teaching of the word, they're engaged. They love worshiping the Lord with their mind. They love thinking about him. They love good teaching. They love when people open the scriptures up to them. And we were talking about it. And I believe that this people, and sometimes even us, I'm not picking on them, it could be us because they are us often. That when we do this, it's in an effort to be authentic. That it would be fake and not truly me to worship God because I don't feel it right now, so I won't. And in an effort to be authentic, I'm going to worship God when I feel like worshiping God. The issue is that the scriptures teach us to worship God in spirit and in truth, not in authenticity. And I am not saying be fake. I'm not telling you that your emotions, your mind, your will, your feelings don't matter. I'm Telus Fuller. I'm the most emotional person I know. They matter. It matters. What I'm saying is that they are not the Lord of your worship. We are commanded actually to let our souls come under submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Not lead him, not lead our worship. If I could say it in a sentence, we need to understand that it is our spirit that dictates our soul, not our soul dictating our spirit. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because there are parts of me sometimes where I don't want to bless the Lord. And how many of us might think often that God wants me to bless him with my best when I want to? Absolutely. Bless God when you want to. Bless God with your feelings and your heart and your emotions. Absolutely. Just don't let that forsake blessing him when you don't want to. Because our soul needs to come underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not Be in charge of it. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. If that's a dirty soul, if that's a confused soul, if that's a conflicted soul, we let our soul come underneath the lordship of Jesus. He says, in all that's within me, bless his holy name. So whether we feel like it or not, whether we feel like worshiping in this moment, whether we feel like getting on our knees, whether we feel like giving, it is a blessing to God to say, soul, I command you to bless the Lord. See, 
the blesser, and it's the blessing. Forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. See, the rest of this psalm essentially is just to David remembering the Lord's benefits. As you read through Psalm 103, what you're going to find is you're going to find David saying things like, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. He's going to say things like, um, as a father shows compassion on his children, so does the Lord show compassion to those who fear him. He's going to say things like, man, as, as for man, he is like a flower of the field and the wind passes over it and it is gone the next moment. But as for the Lord, his love is from everlasting to everlasting and his righteousness goes to children's children. All he's going to do is he's going to remember that, yeah, God made his ways known to Moses and his acts known to the people of Israel. God works righteousness and justice to all who are oppressed. All he's doing is just recounting the benefits of God over and over and over again. And it's a really good idea to consider our good question in this moment. What does David's life have to do with what he just said? The first thing David says after he says, forget not all of his benefits, he immediately says, who forgives all of your iniquity. Now, we don't use that word, but he's saying who forgives you of all of your sins. What does David's life have to do with what he just said? That the first thing that David thinks of as a benefit of God is his mercy. And if you can't think of any other benefit of God in your life, think about this one. That he has forgiven you when he did not have to. That he died for you when he did not need to. That he made you a son and a daughter when you did not deserve it. If you can't think of any other benefit, think of the benefit that he has forgiven you of your sins. That we were born in right relationship with God in the garden and we messed that up through our own selfishness in being deceived. And God in his mercy expelled us from the garden and did not expel us forever. But he started a plan of redemption from the garden that said, I will woo them back to myself. And time and time again, we see men and women who were okay at pleasing God, but not the best at pleasing God. And all of the sudden, God shows mercy after mercy after mercy after we sinned after we sinned after we sinned and then Jesus came along because the father said I'm not just going to send another law another prophet another miracle I'm going to send myself in your place and Jesus lives the life that we could not live perfectly trusting the father in the way that we could not have done he goes to the cross when he did not need to and dies for a sinner who did not deserve it and now because of that justice mercy and grace are all met at the cross. Justice in that sin was dealt with. Mercy in that you didn't have to deal with it. Grace in that now you are a child of God and the spirit of God lives on the inside of you that now your spirit testifies with his that you are a child of God and it is in spite of what you've done not because of what you've done because this is an act of grace out of the merciful hand of God so that no man, woman, child, boy or girl can boast and now he has seated us with him in heavenly places and we can live a life fully devoted to him here and there is one day where we will be with him and every tear will be wiped away from every eye and we will be sitting before the wedding feast of the lamb. If you can't think of any other benefit, think of that one. 
says, forget not all of his benefits, who forgives you of all your iniquity and who heals you of all of your diseases. And I wish I could go into how many diseases that the Lord heals, but just in a simple way, I don't think that David is simply saying spiritually all of your spiritual diseases God heals you from. I think he's talking literally, actually, the Lord will heal you of all your diseases. And I would say that the Lord does this in three ways. He either does it miraculously, medically, or mercifully. That God will heal you miraculously. We believe that here. That God with one hand and with one touch can heal your body right now. And in the name of Jesus, we believe that he will do it right now. And we also believe that God does that medically. That he has given us doctors and wisdom and medicine that we might be healed through what we think are now natural means. But it is a grace of God to be healed medically. And lastly, mercifully. Now I know we don't think of it as a mercy, but sometimes it is a mercy when we die. Because as a follower of Jesus, we will be with him. And we will have a resurrected body that is free of sin and free of disease and free of pain. And the first church, the earlier church, they focused on this a lot. Our resurrected body, that Jesus was coming back one day and we would have a new body that is free from sin. And trust me when I tell you, it is a mercy of God to be with him. Who heals you of all of your diseases. If not now, then absolutely then. Redeems, heals you of all your diseases and he redeems your life from the pit. See, I think that everybody wants redemption, but nobody wants to be redeemed. <laughs> because redemption is great, but to get redemption, you need the circumstances where you need to be redeemed. <laughs> and nobody wants the circumstances necessary to be redeemed. You see, uh, in 2008, um, the U.S. men's uh, national basketball team or Olympic basketball team was appropriately termed the redeem team. And that was because U.S. men's basketball was known as the best, the pinnacle. We could never lose. We did everything right. We had the best players, the best team. All the athletes came from us. And when we went to the Olympics in 2004, we ended up getting bronze. And if you're American, you know anything other than gold is a fail. So we got a bronze and we said, it's gold or bust. We have to come back and win gold in 2008. So the Avengers assembled and LeBron and Kobe and Chris Bosh said, not today. We are going to be the redeem team and we're going to come back and we're going to win gold. Thank God we actually did, right? We come back, we win gold 2008 and we have this idea and, and it gives this kind of quibby little analogy to the idea that that team was so favored and was so beloved. Why? Not just because they had won gold. They had won gold many times before, but because they didn't win gold last time. It's because of the pain of last time that this time was sweeter. He redeems your life from the pit. You see... Even though we needed to assemble the Avengers to go and win the Olympics, heaven only needed one man. And his name is Jesus. And he came and he redeemed your life from the pits. 
if you've ever gardened before, you know that it's a messy process. <laughs> Dad can testify. <laughs> it's a lot of work and a lot of effort for maybe a few weeks of fruit. And you get that fruit and you love that fruit. But while you're working towards it, you kind of get to the point where you're saying, man, is this really worth it? Like, this is just a lot of work. It's really messy. It's costing me a lot. And I'm not sure if we're on the other side, this is really going to be worth it. But I don't know if we can look to anybody in the scriptures who needed to be redeemed and ask them, is it worth it? And they would say no. You look at anybody in the scriptures You ask Mary, who had seven demons living on the inside of her, and if you looked at her and you said, was it really worth it to be redeemed, your redemption? You look at uh, Peter, who, who denied his best friend three times when he said that he would never, and you look at Peter and say, Peter, you were redeemed by God. Was it worth it on the other side? You look at David, who had a very weak moment in his life of sin, and then you look at him on the other side, you said, David, was it worth it to be redeemed by God on the other side? And I think some of us in this room need to hear this. We are so scared of being redeemed by God. We're so nervous of the redemptive hand of God because of the critical eye of man. And we're nervous that other people are going to see that we need to be redeemed. And so we would rather not. But I don't think we can look at Mary and say, Mary, was it worth it? She would say, absolutely. We have to look at Peter and say, Peter, was it worth it? He'd say, absolutely. We have to look at David and say, David, was it worth it? He'd say, absolutely. And you can look at me and you could say, tell us, was it worth it? And I would say, absolutely. You see, the enemy would love for you to think that he can do more damage with your failure than God can do with your redemption. But God is the God who redeems your life from the pit. And he's the only one that can have you looking back at your ashes and say, somehow there's beauty. And he's the only one who can have you looking back at your death and say, somehow there's life. And he's the only one who can have you look back at your life and say, the pain, it was worth it. Because I know him differently than how I did. And I'm different than what I was. And I'm not the same. And know the pain, the redemption, it doesn't feel good. But redemption is not meant to excuse the pain. It's meant to bring something more beautiful from it. He says he prunes us. And he cuts away at the things that don't produce fruit. So that you might be more fruitful. And so you can look at my life and say, was the death worth it? And I can say, by the grace of God, absolutely. He redeems your life from the pit. And no, it doesn't. And it does not take away the pain at all. <laughs> It makes the new life that much more beautiful. He says he redeems your life from the pit. And then listen, I'm done. He crowns you with steadfast love and with mercy. You see, God is a lot of things. He's a father. He's a friend. He's, he's Lord. He's our savior. He's a shepherd. He's a 
And God is also a judge. And some of us, that makes us really scared because we're like, no, I don't want to be judged by God. I don't want that part. I want the Father. But it says that he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Listen to me, that's judgment language. If you are in Christ Jesus, you want God to judge you. Because you know what his judgment is over you, son. Do you know what his judgment is over you, daughter? He says, daughter, I crown you with love. I judge you loved. He says, son, I judge you have received mercy. He says, now that's what you're known for. He says, now that's what I call you. And the enemy would love to knock the crown off your head and say, no, you were what you did. But listen, the gavel has sounded. The judge has spoken. You are a child of God. He redeems your life from the pit and he crowns us with steadfast love and with mercy. And this is not just because God is just so great and that he's just so rich and that he just wanted to throw blessings out at you at no cost and just ignore everything that went in the past. No, there, there needed to be justice. And in Galatians chapter three, what we find is that this gift that we have received is, yes, free to you but it was costly to Jesus. Galatians teaches us that Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Which means that the forgiveness of your sins, the healer of your disease, the redeemer of your life, the crowner of your head, all of these blessings do not come unless he became a curse for us. And now from that place, we are able to bless God because he was cursed for us. Listen, you are saved by the work of Jesus, not by your own works. And it is a free gift of God that if you are far away from him, you can receive it at no cost to you right now. But don't forget that it was costly to him. That it did cost him something. That something being his life. That something being shame. That something being injustice done towards him so that we could be seen rightly before the Father. Do not get it twisted. Jesus Christ allows us to bless him because he was cursed on our behalf. And now from that place, I believe that David prophetically can actually pray Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and let all that's within me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He who heals you of all of your diseases, and he who forgives all of your iniquities. He who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with steadfast love and with mercy. He who satisfies you with goods that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are far, you're so good. 
that you would receive a blessing from us. God, and that you would bless us with every heavenly blessing.